Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, George Frederick Handel wrote this incredible piece that we've exhibited the last several Sundays here uh, entitled The Messiah. It almost didn't come about. Um, he was a writer of operas, and the Messiah is a complete aberration from that. In April 8 of 1741, Handel thought that he had given his final concert. He was actually in severe financial distress, and it looked like he would possibly be heading to debtor's prison himself. Now, debtor's prison was a kind of an interesting medieval process, not medieval uh, English period, that um, if you didn't pay your debts, you'd go to debtor's prison to pay off the debts by hard labor or by work. But you got such a pitiful amount for it that the reality is once you were in debtor's prison, you almost never got out unless somebody else redeemed you, if you will. So he was on the edge of this when something changed his life. Two things. One is his friend, um, Charles Jennings, wrote a, a, a whole section of piece that was based on the life of Christ using strictly scripture. The second thing was that there was a group in Dublin, uh, Ireland, that was prepared to fund this next project for him if it could be given as a benefit to free, ironically, men from debtor's prison, among other things. And so he sat down in a period of just a few short weeks, amazingly wrote the entire Messiah. Now, benefits in those days were often held, those musical events, were often held for benefits to release people from debtor's prison, to set prisoners free, or provide for orphans in England society. One scholar wrote, in fact, that Messiah, this piece... Um, has been so used for that purpose that it has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or any country. At the end of the work that Handel did, he put the initials SDG for Sole Deo Gloria, which means simply, to God alone, the glory. This piece that you can hear today was based entirely on Scripture. The text is drawn from the book of Revelation, Revelations 19.6, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19.16, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Revelation 11.15 reads, he shall reign forever and ever. There's a tradition that is based in myth for the most part that the king, upon hearing this particular piece that you're going to hear today, stood He was so caught by it. And in standing, everyone else, when the king stands, everyone else stood. And so it's become tradition around the world, among many different cultures, that when this particular piece that you're about to hear played, is played, that everybody stands. Now, when I was a kid and I saw this, and since it was being done in churches a lot of times with choirs, I thought it was the Christian national anthem. (laughs) I didn't know. But now you know. And so this morning, for our offering... Do what you choose. Handles Messiah. 
you aren't, you should be staying now for the reading of the Word of God, reading out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you'll go free, leaping with joy like calves let out of a pasture. And then Matthew chapter 9, verse 20. A woman who had been sick for 12 years with internal bleeding came up behind him and touched a tassel of his robe. For she thought, if I only touch him, I will be healed. He just turned around and spoke to her daughter. He said, all is well. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was well from that moment. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated. The piece you just saw was performed by a 600-voice choir in the Royal Sydney, uh, Sydney Royal Opera House. Um, ironic thing about uh, Handel's Messiah is um, it's used often at Christmas time. It's a popular one, but it was actually a Easter uh, piece. And for the longest time, I have wanted to do an Easter service at Christmas, and just to confuse those who only come at that time. <laughs> and so this is my one shot. Um, in addition to that, um, this is an unusual uh, selection of scripture, probably, uh, I would say, to say the least, um, reading in Malachi, and matching this with this passage in Matthew chapter 9. This passage of Malachi is a messianic passage. The Messiah means the anointed one. It means the one who is God's anointed, his special representative, in this case, literally God in the flesh. And so this passage in Malachi is referred to as a messianic passage. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, spelled as in the sunshine, will rise with healing in his wings, and you'll go free, leaving with joy. And so there's something about healing that is associated with the Messiah. This passage is a little interesting, though, because it's talking about um, healing in his wings. It's almost a mixing of metaphors, it appears, because there's this sun, this bright sunshine that's lighting up and bringing health and healing, but there's these wings, and what's that about? Other translations, you'll see that it is saying rays, so like the rays of the sun, and context is important. Um, but the Hebrew language is, a, um, in many ways, a limited language. There's very few words within the Hebrew language, and so a lot of the words can be used in different ways and have different meanings. And so though the, the language of, of, of the, the phrase can mean wings, it can mean rays, but it also, and was taught by the rabbis in the Jewish structure, to mean um, corners, and there's a specific linkage to the idea of corners. And so what I want to walk you through here today is what that means a bit and how that can apply during this time. This woman comes up who's been sick for 12 years and she says, if I can just touch, not even Jesus, but just a portion of his robe and specifies in this translation a tassel. Another one says hem of his garment. If I can just touch that, that that somehow there's going to be something that will heal me. Now, why does she have this understanding? Part of it is because of the passage of Malachi and how it was interpreted by the rabbis to refer to the hem, but a specific part of the hem, the corners. 
in the original time period that all this was happening, there was a, a type of overlay that would happen, and it would be a rectangular piece of cloth that would hang over, and there would be four corners, two front, two back. And um, in order to kind of instruct the Jewish people and keep something before them, there was a variety of things that God instructed. One was phylacteries, where they'd have a leather box, and they'd put a scripture in it and tie it to their forehead so it would always be in front of them or to their arms so they'd always notice it. That was one thing. But another thing that he had asked them to do is found in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to make tassels for the hems of their clothes. This is a permanent regulation from generation to generation. Attach the tassels to their clothes with a blue cord. One of them is supposed to have a, a line of blue in it. And blue is thought to have some reference to God or to the oversight. And this is why the Jewish flag, in fact, you'll see has a line of blue in it. Some of that is to relate to something called a talith, or a talith. Because as time went on, the style changed, and they became rounded, and so there were no corners anymore. And so in part to address that, um, they created something called a talit or a talith. It's also known as a prayer shawl. Now, the original actually worn, not a prayer shawl, but the wearing of the, of the things we're talking about, these four corners, there's a picture of two young men here that give you a snapshot, literally, and these tassels would be down, and they'd hang from these four corners. But for those that didn't want to wear it all the time, or for those that the styles changed, um, they created this prayer shawl. And the prayer shawl has writing upon it, and then has these tassels. And if you look at the tassels, you'll find that there are five knots on each of the tassels, which represents the five books of the, old, of the original Old Testament right at the beginning. And it has four spaces that are in between those that are to represent um, the all we have, Y-H-W-H, of the name of God. They didn't want to mispronounce the name of God. They were so concerned about that. And so as a result, um, we don't know the vowels. Uh, we just have the constants, the Y-H-W-H. Um, and so that it would have these things as a reminder to them. It was to remind them that they belonged to God. It was to remind them of the ways of God. Um, the blue thread had a particular connotation towards God. Um, they would take a prayer shawl when, the, when they didn't wear this other unit as much anymore. And they would traditionally um, kiss each end of where the scripture began or the inscription began where it ended. And then they would take this and they would place it over their head and wrap it around and hang down. You've seen this probably in pictures before. Uh, with these four corners or four wings... Okay, with these tassels that would hang down. Uh, there's actually a passage of scripture where Jesus tells people to go into um, their prayer closet to, to uh, when they're praying to God, not to do it in a public fashion, but to pull in. Um, we take that to mean a physical location, but it's very probably what he meant was actually a talith. And as they put that over and hang it down, um, sometimes when they really wanted to close in with God, they'd wrap themselves close in it. It would be into their prayer closet where people couldn't see what they were doing and they were not distracted by other people. And that would be the purpose of that scripture. Now, with these um, tassels that had meanings towards reminding them of God and their role towards God and everything about that. And this linkage with these tassels to healing became a thing that um, there was another unique aspect, I should say, also in regards to the whole concept of the hem of one's garden garment in Eastern uh, uh, history. The hem and this tassel as well 
was an extension of the person's of the, of their own uh, the owner's person and authority. It represented something with that. The more important the person, the more elaborate or larger their hem would be. Hems were so identified with the individual and authority that in some societies, they could take the hem of a particularly embroidered, uh, um, unique uh, garment and press that into a seal, and it was as good as a signet seal um, for their authority and, and for what it was. So all this is woven into the culture of the scriptures we're talking about here today. This also gives you some context for those of you that remember perhaps that King David, before he was King David, when he's being chased by King Saul, at one point in time Saul's resting in a valley area chasing David, does not realize David's just right above him in a cave. And at night, David slips down and cuts off a corner of his garment, it says, but it's specifically the hem of his garment and probably specifically one of these tassels. And then he shows it to to Saul the next day because he's feeling repentant about it. Why is he feeling repentant? Just because he cut off a hem. Because that hem and that tassel represented the authority and the person of the king. In doing so, he had actually violated something in doing that. And so he repents of it and shows that uh, in place. So this whole concept of these was a a reminder of the Shema, Israel, uh, our God is one. It was a reminder that Jews were God's servants. It was viewed as a way of even kind of being engaged with the the face of God. Um, All this was wrapped up with these tassels or these hems. It's also incidentally the reason why Jesus at one point in time is condemning the Pharisees. We find that in Matthew chapter 23 verse 5. It says everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes or phylacteries with scripture verse inside. And they wear robes with what? Extra long what? Tassels. Okay. To say these wide hems, we're really important people. These long tassels, why? So people really notice. Did you notice even our guys up there had really long tassels? So people notice that we're particularly spiritual. And not only that, but if tassels are associated with healing, then maybe I'm a candidate for Messiah, and you'll think I'm one of those messiahs, and and I've got the healing power as well, too. So all of those things would be involved with the tassel. This is what was taught in the society of the time. This is what is understood. So when you have this woman coming to Jesus... And right now you're sitting going, this has got nothing to do with wise men, shepherds, or, 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 or mangers. I want wise men, shepherds, and mangers. Come Christmas Eve, all right? We'll give you some wise men, we'll give you some shepherds and some mangers, all right? <laughs> but as we go along, I hope you'll understand how this actually links deeply to the season. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll give you some wise men, all right? Three wise men come, and they come bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? The myrrh was something that you would wrap a body that had died, and it was to represent the mankind or the humanity of Christ and his future sacrifice for all of mankind. The frankincense was used as the type of incense that you'd burn before a god. It was in worship. And so if the myrrh represented Christ's manhood or humanity, the myrrh or the frankincense represented his deity, the fact that he is God. Is Christ God or man? Yes. Yes. He is both, 100% both. Where's the gold come in? I'm glad you asked that. The gold comes in to represent him as king, which brings us back to our conversation today as king of kings. 
And so this awareness that there's going to be a king that's going to come, but he's going to be a different kind of king than has ever come before. And one of the things that's really emphasized and expressed about this king is that he is going to come with healing. There's something about this. And they're taught that Messiah is going to have healing that's going to be so powerfully a part of his identity and of who he is that his very clothing, and specifically these religious and deeply profoundly um, um, biblical tassels, that they're going to have a power by itself. There will be healing in not his wings, not his rays, but within these tassels, within his very clothing, the corners of what he is wearing. This woman would have been taught that. She would have heard it in synagogue. So now, she sees someone who's being said to be Messiah. She's had an issue where she has been bleeding for 12 years. We don't know the specifics, but it appears like maybe it would have been either a nonstop menstrual process, but something internally. It wasn't a cut. It was an internal process, but it had gone on for 12 years and had not stopped. We know from one of the other passages of Scripture, I won't bring it up on the screen here today, but in one of the other passages in Mark chapter 5, the message portion of this is expanded. Jesus is actually on his way to, to restore a child, a 12-year-old child who is, die, who is dying. And on his way, the crowds press around him. This woman sees her opportunity and reaches out in touch. He's on his way to another healing when there's this drive-by healing that occurs. <laughs> and we know from this passage in Mark that expands on this, that this woman had suffered, it literally says she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she spent everything she had to pay them, but she got no better. I have great respect for the medical profession, but in this time and place for this disease, they couldn't do anything. She had exhausted her finances. In fact, it says in the scripture, she actually had gotten worse. And we sit here and say, well, that's tragic. She's got a medical condition, and, and that's horrible. You need to understand the detail behind this. This was an issue of blood for a woman. Under the law, she was viewed as unclean. What this meant is she couldn't go to synagogue or to church. And they didn't have live stream in those days either. So she she had no engagement spiritually with the community. She couldn't engage with others. She was viewed as unclean in social situations. On top of it, if she was married, she couldn't be involved or have sexual relationships with her husband at all. She was viewed as unclean, not for one, not for five, not for ten, for 12 years. This woman had suffered, not just physically, but emotionally, socially, spiritually. There was a sense of isolation that had happened with this woman. So she hears about a king who's coming, the Messiah, and that, that there could be healing, maybe just in, in touching one of the tassels. And so she sees him going by. She violates the law. In quiet and hiding, she comes out, hoping nobody recognizes her what the issue is. And she reaches out, and lo and behold, she's healed. Now, in the Mark passage, it says that, that the bleeding stopped. She could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once the healing power had gone out from me. He immediately recognized it. So he turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And the disciples said, are you insane? We're in a crowd. Everyone's jostling. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. We're all touching. But none of them are doing it with intentionality. They're just part of the celebrity thing that's going on. Nobody's thinking of the rabbi's teachings. Nobody's thinking of the prophet of Malachi who's talking about this one who's going to come with healing. The disciples look at this crowd pressing around. How can you ask who touched me? 
He kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she'd done. And he said to her daughter, isn't that great? He didn't say woman. He didn't say, hey, you. He says, daughter. We blurred the lines so much anymore in our society that we've lost what it means to be a daughter or a woman or what it means to be a son or a man. There's unique and powerfully, powerful aspects to that. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. In other words, you were intentional in what you were doing. You took a risk. You reached out in faith. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. The message I have for you this morning is not a terribly lengthy message. Thank you for no applause on that line. It's a fairly simple one. Jesus the Messiah, the one who comes, who's going to be known as king, who's the wise men honor and foretell his future even, has the power to heal. What does that mean? Healing is when something has been broken and it can be restored. Healing is when something has invaded the body and the cells are breaking down and they're suddenly renewed with fresh life. Healing is something that takes what is lost and brings it back into place again and reverses the negative trend of entropy. This king doesn't come demanding tribute. This king does not come demanding our lives and our servitude as such. He comes and offers himself And the key aspect, the critical revealing aspect of who he is, is his ability, power, and desire to heal. It's the complete opposite of the kings that we know of. This king, marked not just with the gold of his kingship, but also the frankincense of his deity and the myrrh of his sacrifice, descending through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, And the mark of all this, we find, is his healing touch. This idea of a king who heals or or restores or has, this is a key aspect, is not only found in the prophets and not only found in this moment of time here, but it was something that has worked its way through much of Western history and literature. And I'm going to give you two quick examples this morning. How many of you ever heard of Mark Twain? How many of you have read any of his stuff? Ah, good, some of you have, all right. How many of you have read A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court? Not as many. Have any of you seen the movie? A few more, all right. If you won't read it, see the movie. Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby's in the movie as this Connecticut Yankee. What's a Connecticut Yankee? He's a guy from Connecticut up north there. He's a blacksmith uh, uh, in, in days past, uh, and so at the time Twain's writing. And something happens, and he's, he's thrust back in time to the time of Camelot and King Arthur. And so he encounters King Arthur in, in all his gorgeous majesty, and he immediately begins to bring some of the modern conveniences to Camelot. And so he works contraptions and different things with him, and he and the king strike up a relationship. And at one point in time, um, the Yankee, Bing Crosby in our, in our uh, um, uh, movie version, convinces the king to, to take a tour of his kingdom, but to do it not from his horse or from his carriage, but to do it as a commoner. And so Arthur dresses up, like a common person. And he's never experienced the common life. 
I mean, he loves his people and he's a good king. But it's kind of like one of our presidents ways back. Remember, he, he was doing a photo op at a, at a, a grocery store. And some of you recall that he's like, wow, these, these scanners, you scan, that's amazing. That's brand new. It's like, yeah, it's actually been around about 20 years, dude. Okay, you know, you don't get out much, do you? No, not to a grocery store. He has people that does that for him, all right? So the king's out and about. And there's a lot of funny things that happen with it. It's mostly a comic element. But there's one in his actual work. There's one chapter called The Smallpox Hot. And the smallpox hot, hut is how the king and, and, and the Yankee come upon this beggar's hut. The husband lies dead. And the wife tries to warn them away. This is what Twain writes. For the fear of God, who visits with misery and death such as we harmless? In other words, God's cursed us in some way, this lady's saying, and visits death on just us harmless, weak people. Tarry not here, but fly. This place is under a curse. She doesn't know it's the king. The king replies, let me come in and help you. You are sick and in trouble. And the woman asked the king to go into the loft after some persuasion and check on their child. Twain picks it up here. It was a desperate place for him to be in and might cost him his life, observes the Yankee, but it was no use to argue with him. The king disappears up a ladder looking for the girl. There's a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other. He came forward into the light and upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15. She was but half conscious. She was dying of smallpox. Here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed. With all the odds against the challenger, no reward set upon the contest, and no admiring world in its silks and cloth of gold to gaze and, and applaud. And yet the king's bearing was as serenely brave as it had always been in those cheaper contests where knights um, meet knights in equal fight, and clothed in protecting steel. He was great now, sublimely, sublimely great. The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have an addition. I would see to that. And it would not be a mailed king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. This is Jesus on the cross. A king in commoner's garb bearing sinners in his arms. This is the king that is born in this season of time with frankincense and myrrh and gold. There's another writer, an English one this time, one that I've referenced many times before and will probably reference many times again, a Christian who infused his writing with scripture and with Christian symbolism, J.R.L. Tolkien, and in his great work, The Fellowship of the Ring, the last piece is entitled The Return of the King. And this character that you've seen throughout the, all the books and the movies named Aragorn, this, he's an outsider, he's a warrior. But his true lineage is to be the king of the great land. Centuries before, his, his forebears had left that land, left it in the hands of a steward. And they thought the line had died out. But he actually embodies the heritage a great battle's been fought, and, and he succeeds in that battle and frees the city. 
And he enters the city at this point in time, but not in triumph, not yet. He enters in disguise, still as a ranger, still as a simple warrior. And he goes to the houses of healing. Why? Because several people had been struck down in this conflict. And the weapons that had struck them down had pierced to the very soul because they were constructed in evil. And so they had physical wounds, but the wounds actually of these weapons had gone much deeper and they were in a level of coma in a dark place that they were not going to come out of. They were gradually going to waste away and die. One is the warrior Faramir, who was rightfully by the descendant of the stewards to be the next king, but he was just to hold the place until the real king comes. And now the real king's come, but he's come, even as Christ did, in disguise. He enters the city. He goes to the houses of healing. And as he goes there to look and see Fairmore and others who need healing, he takes a, a very common uh, a type of, 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 of uh, greenery and, and he twists it and breaks it open. It was called king's foil. And there were certain things attached to it from history that nobody knew really why it was called king's foil. It didn't seem to have any use from any healing thing. Maybe make a good tea, they said. But in this case, when he breaks it open, mix it with warm water, there's a sudden fragrance when his hands touch it that fill the room and transform the moment. And one of the old healers there says, well, now, who would have believed it? Um, that, that, that is better than, than I thought. It reminds me of the roses and things from my background. Uh, no king could ask for better. Suddenly, Faramore stirs. And he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him. And a light of knowledge, he understands, he sees who he is for the first time. And love was kindled in his eyes and he spoke softly, my Lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? And then this. Walk no more in shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while, take food, and be ready when I return. I will, Lord, said Faramir. For who would lie idle when the king has returned? Walk no more in shadows, but awake. Scripture says that there were people walking in darkness and they've seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has, shone, has, shone, has dawned. Do we comprehend that light? Do we comprehend that this light is embodied in the person who is both God and man, who is king of kings, who had the authority over all things, but also brings hope, but above all, brings healing? was not just a baby to be sentimentalized during the season of time or commercialized in our merchandise, but the King of kings and Lord of lords to whose angels will sing forever, hallelujah, hallelujah, to which handles great fantastic work the Messiah barely scratched the surface of. Do we recognize that this is the one who will open the seals that not only bring judgment, but also grace and redemption for all men? That this is Jesus who comes with healing. At one point in time, John the Baptist, he's, he's, he's angered somebody on the political front. And in those days, you just didn't get kicked off Twitter. You actually got tossed into prison. So he's tossed in prison. He's about to lose his head. He's going to die for, for believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And he sends some people to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? Or should we look? Are you the one? And Jesus responds this way in Matthew chapter 11. Go and tell John, what you hear and see, that I've won great battles and that I've built great structures and that I'm a powerful figure that struts across the stage of history demanding attention. Go and tell John what you hear and see. And he quotes the prophets. The blind receive their sight. This is what I'm doing, John. And the lame walk. This is what I'm doing, John. Lepers 
isolated from people, like this woman of blood, socially outcast, are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is one who is not offended by me, John. In other words, he says, I come with healing. I am the Messiah. It's not the trumpets, it's not the warrior, it's not the swords. It's the healing and the reality and the desire to do that and the capacity to do that, to fix what is broken, to restore what is lost. And so Matthew chapter 1 is true. And she'll have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from the sickness of their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, a virgin will conceive a child, and she'll give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the darkness, there's a song that says, we were waiting without hope, without light. It talks about someone coming from heaven with mercy in their eyes to fulfill the law and the prophets. To take a throne of endless glory. But it begins with this cradle in the dirt. I don't know what relationships have been shattered for you. I don't know what physical structure, struggles, or sicknesses that you have had. This woman reached out in faith and received healing. There was something that changed for her as she took hold of that in faith. For those who reach out in faith and take hold, he still restores today. Yesterday, I helped to bury the wife of one of my closest friends, herself a very close friend of mine. And Jesus has the power of healing even to extend beyond that. As he's going in this drive-by, healing takes place. By the time he gets to the other place, the girl's died. But all he says is, wake up, like to Pharaoh or Aragorn. Wake up. Come out of the shadowlands. Come out of the darkness. And the reality is, the person who I buried yesterday, I'm going to see again because his power transcends life. And I don't know who you've lost in this last season of time, but if they were in Christ, you will see them again. And there will be celebration. There will be hallelujahs around the throne. We serve a king who is the king of kings. We serve a king who brings hope. We serve a king that doesn't burden us with things, but relieves us of those burdens. And of all the things that define who this king is, he is a king that comes and heals and restores. This morning, in this hour of time, before we go to all the shepherds and the wise men, God bless them, and all the rest, let's pause and let's take acknowledgement of this king. So, Father, this morning, I pray for those in this gathering I pray, Lord, that for everyone who's lost a loved one and that mourns, I pray for all those who are suffering with a sickness or illness, that they would be, if not restored, then strengthened in this season. I pray, Lord, for all those who have, have fractured relationships, that, that, that even this hour as they take hold of you, as they'd reach just to touch the hem of your garment, Lord, that there would be something that would flow into these relationships that would bring healing 
and restoration. I pray, Father, for those who struggle in darkness right now and the oppression of all that we see around us, that there would be a hope that would rise to know that ultimately there will be healing. Lord, this morning, on this time of the holiday, we come before you as your people, and we ask, Lord, for a revelation. We ask, Lord, that you take us for a moment, and even as Handel's Messiah just gives us a glimpse of heaven, that you just give us a glimpse this morning of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of hope, of glory, and of healing. For my money, the Sydney Opera House can keep their 600. You guys sounded just good. Now, here's the thing, as I said before, uh, Handel's Messiah was actually written for Easter. But there's so much of it that relates to, I think you see now, for Christmas. So, I want to send out with a proper greeting. Happy Easter. <laughs> Christmas Eve is one of, the favorite, one of my favorite times of the year. And despite everything I said, it's proper to honor some of the very traditional aspects of that. I hope you'll join us either at 5 or 8 o'clock um, this Saturday. But I hope you will leave here today with the realization and awareness of not just little baby, as important as that is, but of the King of Kings, one who is God and man, and one who brings healing and restoration and hope. And whatever your circumstances, whatever your isolation, whatever your sickness, whatever things have separated you, realize there's a God who loves you and has never stopped reaching out to you. So, Father, we come before you today, and we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and give you glory, and we sing hallelujah. Praise be to God. Praise be to Yahweh, very specifically, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know who you are, and we are so grateful that you know who we are, and that you cared enough to walk amongst us, and you still do to this day. So we honor you this day and give you praise and honor and glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.